You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. There are a lot of stories out there right now about what happened. Yeah, there, 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 are, there, are, there are lots of there, there are lots of stories out there about what has happened. We just are going to allow the process to move forward, uh, allow the facts to unfold, and as they unfold, as we make a determination for ourselves about what happened there, based on the facts that are presented to us. The United States will determine what the appropriate response might be. Thank you all for your time today. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo continues to take a notably languid approach as Saudi Arabia attempts to clean up its own mess. My guests Daniela Pellet and Samira Shackle will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including another change of name for another Indian city, several steps backwards in Afghanistan after a tentative toe forward, and is paying for public transport with empty bottles the future. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Samira Shackle, freelance journalist writing for The New Statesman, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle, Monocle, and others. Welcome both. And we will start with the accelerating ructions and repercussions consequent to the disappearance, now more than two weeks ago, of the Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Today, The Washington Post published the last, published, rather, the last column Khashoggi filed to the paper. Elsewhere, the list of non-attendees of Saudi Arabia's imminent Davos in the Desert Investment Conference continues to grow, with Western politicians and corporations signalling their indignation by withdrawing. The question thus prompted is why this sudden squeamishness, given that the apparent murder of Khashoggi is far from the first transgression against elementary decency perpetrated by the Saudi regime. Um, Daniela, there is, an, there is an old adage about dealing with newspapers, uh, which cautions against picking fights with people who buy ink by the barrel. Uh, is, is, that what, is that what is going on here, that there is more media attention being paid to this than there might otherwise be because it is a journalist on the receiving end? Uh, I'm not sure that the fact it's a journalist uh, makes a difference. I think it, it's quite simple, really, that uh, a narrative that involves one person somehow stirs a public imagination more than the ongoing atrocities, for instance, in Yemen. Uh, I found it quite uh, strange that this has garnered the the massive attention that it has. I mean, when I first heard the story that apparently he'd been abducted and killed, it seemed rather bonkers to me. Uh, I was assuming that this was, I mean, Turkey's got its own axe to grind with Saudi Arabia. So I was, I wasn't really quite sure that, uh, I wasn't very convinced immediately. But as more and more details have emerged, I mean, I think this is why it's, it's caught imagination because it is so compelling it's uh, it's got all the uh, ingredients for a well for a spy story for a sort of for a, a film version and it's all the more um, peculiar because he wasn't a particularly extreme dissident I mean he'd been very close to the to the previous regime and this doesn't seem to be the usual modus operandi of the Saudis so it seems to come a bit out of left field really 
I mean, is it, well, Samira, to, to, to quote uh, an, another common adage, an inversion of the, the maxim usually attributed to Stalin that, that one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic, is it that thing that when people sort of think of Yemen, if they think of Yemen, it's just, it, it seems absolutely incomprehensible. It's, it's thousands of dead and injured, it's entire cities in ruins. But this one man who we get to see uh, taking what must have been among his very last steps as he walks into his own country's consulate to perform some minor bureaucratic formality, I, I, is that what it is, that it, it's something that you can relate to? Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely what it is. And also when... As you say, when you're talking about a war, it's almost incomprehensible. It's kind of, you know, there's there's been psychological studies about that, even the way that we respond differently to a tragedy that's sort of one person with a face, as it were, rather than, um, a, a, you know, perhaps millions of people dying in a war. It's just that you, you just kind of compute it differently. And we saw that with the refugee crisis where uh, the toddler, Elan Kurdi, mm. uh, that, you know, that garnered a huge amount of public attention perhaps more than the you know the kind of thousands and thousands of people who were who were dying anyway um and so I think that's a natural kind of psychological process. And I think that there's also, apart from the fact that this is a person with a face, and as you say, we can see him on a video, um, as Daniela says, there's just so much um, that's kind of extraordinary about it, I think. So just, um, you know, the fact that this, I think actually if, if he'd been kind of abducted and disappeared and whatever back to Saudi Arabia, I don't think we would be hearing so much about this. It's the fact that it's kind of on uh, on foreign soil in an embassy in a kind of a formal government building apparently being you know dismembered and, and incredibly gruesome and such flouting of so many diplomatic norms it's not just that he wasn't a particularly extreme dissident it's also that you know to actually be kind of political assassination is one thing to actually apparently be murdered within an embassy building it's so extraordinary even if you take the fact that it's Saudi Arabia out of the question I think that it would be getting a lot of attention uh, wherever in the world it was uh, Daniela does it strike you that the Saudis seem somewhat baffled uh, by the backlash that there has been um yes quite possibly uh I think the nature of these things I mean if you talk about public rebranding the idea that women are going to be allowed to drive or are allowed to drive already, that was, uh, I think, thinking might have been, well, that was the big one, right? That is the big thing that the West has been going on and on about. That strikes an enormous blow, young, reformer, and that was going to overshadow whatever else is is going on. But I think, that, like, like Samira said, this, is, this story has really just taken off. Uh, I find it I find it very strange and I, and I find it very strange as well that uh, various Western governments are talking about shared values as if really our values and Saudi Arabia's values were ever really, really very shared. I mean, shared economic values, maybe. But the, the the UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt, who I believe, was the one talking about shared values, which I did raise an eyebrow myself. Hmm. Right, right. So... It also doesn't help that the the people who mostly uh, bang on about the evils of Saudi Arabia as well, in the UK at least, are the are the left and the far left. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, that's their one of their celebrity causes. We need to stop all arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, but again, it seems a very binary choice because they don't talk much about Syria or other crises in the world. So I think that turns a lot of people off. It's a complicated um, it's a complicated conflict too and it's very far away and there hasn't been a, a resulting refugee crisis that has affected Europe. So I think it's been easier to sort of park that one.
Samira, there has been, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, widespread desertion of this investment conference that the Saudis were hoping to stage imminently. Is that likely to be the limit of it, do you think? I mean, what we haven't yet really got a sense of, I don't think, is how genuinely outraged and appalled Western governments are by this, whether they're thinking or hoping that this is something that will blow over as well. I mean... Yeah, I think that probably is going to be the limit of it, judging from what we've seen. You know, you have Jeremy Hunt talking about shared values. You have Trump saying, comparing it to the Kavanaugh hearings and saying it's another case of guilty until proven innocent. You have Pompeo after his meeting with Saudi Arabia saying, um, oh, well, I didn't ask about the facts and they didn't want to talk about them either. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> it's ridiculous. So I think, um, I, th- I think there have been other blips in the you know kind of US particularly but also also encompassing the UK but the US Saudi relationship in the past you know um like 9/11 for instance 15 of the 19 attackers were from Saudi Arabia that had the potential to be a big upset but ultimately it wasn't because the kind of shared bonds of of trade and oil and worry about an expanding Iran and and cooperation on counterterrorism uh, trump all of that i think so I don't think we're going to see a huge um, a, a huge uh, kind of shift in policy in terms of the relationship to Saudi Arabia. I think it's seen as too important an ally. But I do think the optics are are really, really difficult. You know, you have a dissident journalist being murdered on uh, on foreign soil. All of it is just it's it's kind of it's extraordinary in, and difficult to ignore, I think. And if you look at the early attempts to kind of manage this situation as well, the, the story leaked a few days ago that apparently he died during an interrogation that went wrong. Like somehow that was yeah. going to be like, the, the Saudi way out of this inc- extraordinarily... Are like, uh, oh, we just meant to torture him mm-hmm, to death? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it is extraordinary, and there will be more on this, uh, an extended look on this and the potential ramifications on the Foreign Desk this Saturday at Midday London. Uh, let's look now at India, where, to the delight of underemployed cartographers around the world, several cities have in recent years changed their names. Madras has become Chennai, Bombay, Mumbai, Calcutta, Kolkata, among many others. To that list, we can now add Allahabad in Uttar Pradesh, which will henceforth be known as Prayagraj. One does not require an advanced appreciation of regional Indian politics to grasp what has occurred here. The city's Muslim name has been replaced by a Hindu one. This has occurred at the instigation of Uttar Pradesh's chief minister, Yogi Adityanath, who is perhaps counterintuitively both a fire-breathing hardline nationalist and a monk. Um, Samira, is this the same sort of thing as we have witnessed with those other name changes? The ones I cited, I guess, were mostly attempts to de-Britishize, weren't Mm. they? This is an attempt, as certainly as the chief minister sees it, to demoogalize but is it politically significant yeah i think it's slightly different to that because uh pretty much everyone uh, bar perhaps a few kind of aging elites pretty much everyone in india agrees that british colonization was bad whereas um the the kind of position of the Mughals in in indian history is slightly different in that indian leaders have more traditionally seen that you know that we're talking about three centuries here of muslim rule have traditionally said that uh, have taken the view that those Mughal rulers um, effectively integrated to an extent with the with Hindu uh, culture, and that it, it resulted in India's kind of uniquely varied and and diverse religious and social culture. So that's kind of traditionally been the view. Um, whereas Hindu nationalist groups, um, of which uh, UP's uh, chief minister is a proponent and a, and a long-standing member 
take the position that the Mughal era was foreign occupation and thereby the, the idea that kind of Muslims by extension in India are occupiers. And so it's much more politically charged, I think, than those uh, those other uh, those other renamings. Although obviously, you know, there is form of renaming places in India, but I think it's definitely charged with that kind of religious tension. So, Daniela, are we therefore probably not to take at straight at straightforward face value the the assertion of Uttar Pradesh's chief minister that this is this is merely a reversion to more or less the city's original name uh, before the Mughals turned up circa the 16th century or so? Well, no, not at all. I mean, look, how far back are we are we gonna are we gonna go? Are we gonna rename London Londonwick? You know, and reclaim our our uh, Celtic heritage. It's a, it's a very very literally nothing would surprise me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very political move, and in the way that victors have always changed the names of the places they conquer, uh, except Hindus in India are not supposed to be victors, are they? I mean, that's that that. That uh, chimes with a very, very nationalistic uh, view and the idea that one ethnic group, one religious group has got to be dominant over another. I mean, what looking at this story, what it really reminded me was the situation in Israel where similarly 20% of the population is from a different religion and ethnic group and the, there is an obsession, historically has been an obsession of naming and renaming uh, locations and certainly many many of original Arab towns villages and sites were renamed with a Hebraicized um, name and that sends a very very powerful message about who is in charge and uh, the fact that we're not really going to share our narrative this is one narrative it's going to be the dominant narrative and don't really mind who we offend. It, it is, isn't it, an incredibly powerful gesture to rename a city, to make people have to think about where they come from by a completely different name, perhaps from a completely different culture or a completely different language. It's really not unusual, though. Is, is it... I don't know... It, I'm just trying to think if, the, if, the, if there's ever a, a reason for doing it which doesn't seem somewhat sinister. I mean, I guess in a post-colonial context... I mean, you, you can understand the the impulse to do it. You know, if you've had kind of arbitrary name changes, if you think about Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, uh, for instance, like indeed, so. Like, um, I don't think it's necessarily always bad, but I do think in the in the context of of India at the moment, and and not forgetting that this is a guy who's was involved in a kind of mass. Um, mass conversion of Christians to Hinduism which he described as which was described as a purification drive he said things like I will not stop until UP is a is an entirely Hindu state um so I don't I think we I think we have grounds to be suspicious of his motives and kind of generally the Hindu nationalist movement in India is not um particularly inclusive let's say no, I suppose it's 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 fairly difficult yeah. to begrudge the people of Eastern Europe for for renaming various streets exactly. and cities after non-Soviet things. I do remember once meeting somebody in in Hungary who said that their grandmother was terribly pleased when when the wall came down and the Iron Curtain was removed because you'd never bothered to learn any of the communist names of the streets <laughs> for forty odd years, and now they were just going to all go back to what they were called. Um, I was, the other analogy I was thinking of, Daniela, and I'm not, I'm not actually sure what I think of it, um, is it analogous to to hauling down commemorative statues to people who history has taken a different view of? I think the key thing is there needs to be consensus. There needs to be buy it, the buy-in from, from people and not just the majority, but from society in general. I don't think there are many protesters when the Leningrad was changed back to its good old name. And... 
as Samira said, you have recent colonial memory and then you have history. Um, I think the Mughals are a part of the Indian story right now in terms of uh, in terms of the traditions, the cultures and the foods and the arts. The same with any uh, historical historical occupation or movement or, or change of populations. And there's a limit to how far you can go back. What's happening now is trying to... Uh, it's trying to reconquer uh, and refight a battle that was fought centuries ago, of which people, modern residents, can can only lose because this is not something that uh, that chimes with the idea of modern India. But is there a message being sent here, Samira, along the lines of various messages that have been sent, certainly during the the premiership of Narendra Modi, uh, to India's Muslim population generally? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that, you know, the the worry when Modi came to power was that he represented um, a, a kind of political segment that that believes very much that um, that India is a Hindu state and positing India as a as a Hindu state is actually quite controversial because it's um, the modern sense of India is of a type of secularism that gives equal prominence and equal weighting to all religions. And so I think renaming and, and kind of casting the Muslim Indians as historically the, the Mughals were uh, as as a kind of colonizer and renaming it, um, I think sends a very powerful message to India's Muslims who are already very beleaguered. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniela Pellet and Samira Shackle. Coming up next, Afghanistan, where the light at the end of the tunnel appears to have been delayed again. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's Bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Samira Shackle and Daniela Pellet. Earlier this month, it was widely and wearily observed that it is now possible for Americans who were not born when the US invaded Afghanistan in 2001 to enlist in the US military and in due course take their turn at doing whatever it is the US and their allies are still doing there. Another reminder of the distance between what was envisaged 17 years ago and where we presently are was issued today when the commander of US forces in Afghanistan, General Austin Scott Miller narrowly escaped an attack in Kandahar province. Kandahar's governor, Zalmai Waisa, according to some reports, Police Chief General Abdul Razik definitely and the head of the local intelligence service also confirmed were all killed. The Taliban have claimed responsibility for this attack. Um, Samira, this does follow a series of recent meetings between the Taliban and some US officials in Qatar. Um, can we infer from this that these were largely a waste of every Everybody's time. Yeah, it seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the the 
Taliban are still, you know, they, they've obviously from those talks not softened their line on the elections, which is that they're uh, anti-Afghanistan, anti-Islamic, prolonging the foreign occupation and complicity with a with a government that's effectively a puppet state. That's the kind of uh, Taliban line on Afghan elections, which has always been their line on on elections that have been held there um, and will continue to be and has, has kind of motivated all the election violence that we've seen up till this point. We've had, I think, something like 10 candidates have been killed as well as scores and scores of um, supporters. Uh, Danielle, the thing that perplexes me about this attack, which the, the, and the Taliban's claim of responsibility does apparently suggest that General Miller was among the targets, um, it's, it's hard for me to discern why they think that, from their own point of view, would be a smart thing to do, because it is very hard to envisage that the American response to that would not be, uh, let's call it, significant. Well, if you're fighting an insurgent war, you go for whatever uh, targets you can and the more high profile, the better. I mean, there's the the Taliban aren't united when it comes to the so-called peace process and what their office in Qatar is pursuing doesn't always gel with the the people back home and and, in in Pakistan as well. Um, You strike when you have the opportunity. I'm not really surprised by by the attack at all it it comes the peace process has been moving forward in some ways i mean this summer we saw an unprecedented ceasefire in after ramadan in in june we had for three days there was a cessation of fighting and you had uh taliban fighters mingling with ordinary people and people taking selfies and there was a there was real excitement over it this idea that as in a peace process you have to welcome back the fighters and as well, it's fairly fluid uh, membership of the organisation. And the idea that there can be a political process which the Taliban completely oppose. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I, I try not to be too unremittingly um, negative about Afghanistan because I think there, have been, there has been some progress and there is hope and there is uh, reason to believe that, that things can change. Uh, Right now, perhaps not a good time to raise examples. Uh, Samira, does anybody actually have a clear idea, especially as Daniela points out, the Taliban are, are, are very far, uh, as they always have been, from being a, a, a unified mm. organisation with a common purpose. Does anybody really understand what an actual peaceful settlement to Afghanistan would look like? No, I think there's. Um, I don't think that's clear at all. And I think that you have um, the kind of classic problem with negotiations such as these which is that the two sides are starting from such different points um and you know you have the, this um j- just so many different kind of delicate factors not only the fact that the taliban doesn't speak with one voice but also the fact that the taliban doesn't want the afghan government to be there uh, which is you know part of a, a whole sort of recent um recent fuss that's happened that the, they want to negotiate directly with the americans there's this whole kind of um dance around it and at the center i think is this problem as you say there's not a clear sense of what a peaceful settlement would look like because i think until quite recently um the us certainly didn't want to acknowledge the fact that the taliban would have to be part of that um final settlement so you know it's it's very tricky and sort of shifting ground from which to start negotiations uh, Daniela, to go back to that, that watershed that was reached last month, where it, it is now possible for uh, a, a, 
a, a 17-year-old American to go and enlist, presumably to go and fight in a war that started before he or she was born. Uh, does it strike you that the United States, were you to ask the United States, still has a clear and coherent idea of what it's doing in Afghanistan? Well, I don't think there was ever a real clear and coherent um, idea. I mean, bin Laden was unseated you know, within about five minutes. And then there was this whole confusion about nation building and security. And I think uh, Donald Trump is very clear that the big enemy is, is ISIS. And he dropped the mother of all bombs on uh, on one of their bases. But there's look, there's there's there isn't a mass force. There's about ten thousand uh, U.S. troops in Afghanistan now. They're by agreement with the government, and there are actually quite a lot of Afghans that don't want them to go because they've been very they they have been helpful at, at keeping um, helping security. And the the idea is is the Afghan army and the police force are going to take over. I mean, in the in the last elections, they did a fairly good job of of maintaining security. Uh, really surprisingly so through both rounds you know a very very fraught presidential election so they elections due i believe to, uh, on saturday which have been delayed and delayed and delayed and i can only hope that they manage to to also keep some measure of security i mean the corruption has been intense in in the run up to it and i think everyone is is prepared to is prepared for that but registration has been low uh, people don't want to risk their lives to turn up and vote if they think that their outcome has, has already been set anyway. OK, well, finally tonight uh, we go to Istanbul and what seems like an idea so straightforwardly smart and sensible that it appears almost suspicious. At the ITU Ayazaga metro station, machines have been installed which make it possible to pay towards top-ups of one's travel card with recyclable cans and bottles. Istanbul authorities hope to install more of the machines across the city's transport network in due course. Um, Samira, have you been able to spot any way this isn't a good idea? No, seems like a really good idea. Well, this win-win, is, this, isn't it? This, this is unhelpful. We, we, yeah. We've still got three and a half minutes. Yeah. Well, I know. I, no, I, da- Daniela has okay. a counterpoint. This yeah, is I know. I can, I, I can disagree quite strenuously on this. I'm oh, sorry. Good. I don't want to play the sort of bitter old suspicious hat card here, but to me, this whole story smells very strongly of the Istanbul City Tourism Marketing Board. Uh, it's a lovely idea, isn't it? Bring in the bottles, you know, green city, etc., uh, etc. Et but Turkey is terrible at recycling it's got an awful environmental record i think like one percent of its waste gets recycled or something's bonkers like that so it's all very well to say okay bring in your bottles and you can get credit on the metro but it it means nothing it just gets you lots of really nice stories in uh in uh but isn't that the idea to try and force a change by incentivizing it to kind of make people aware of recycling yeah absolutely i think incentivizing works very well Mm. Um, in general, uh, when it, it comes it, to it, when will, you need it, a little bit more than just that. It will clean up the number of bottles and cans, whatever it is that people bring to the station and put in the machines. It is better than nothing, isn't it? Well, I think when you talk about environmental change, better than nothing is really like the resort <laughs> that you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to go to. Um, Samira, apparently, uh, roughly twenty eight one point five liter plastic bottles will add up to a one way fare. I don't think they're anticipating that being how it works. I think the idea is if you bring a couple, it will top up your card a bit. But hmm. is, is 
is that good value? I'm trying to think of the last time. I'm trying to think back to the Australia of my youth where mm. you used to be able to recycle a can for 10 whole cents, which at the, which at the time was a considerable fortune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a huge incentive. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's a nice idea, though, isn't it? You kind of um, get something. I mean, I, I, I take your point. No, no, I do think, like... Uh, more broadly, when you're talking about um, kind of environmental, um, kind of environmental improvements or, sh- or shifts, I don't think personal behaviour is actually the most important thing. It's a small part of the picture, and actually, of course, what you need is is kind of government and international level agreements on emissions and uh, all sorts of other things. But I think that it is, as a kind of starting point to get some attention on the question of recycling, it's good. So, Daniela, are you saying you would not personally lug empty cans and bottles to the tube station to order to get a few quid off your Oyster card? I think when you put it like that, actually, I think I probably would just for the attention. <laughs> what do you mean, just for the attention? Is, are, you, are you going to be that person who saves up till they've got like an absolutely enormous crate of <laughs> bottles and just stands there I, plonking in one at a time? Yeah, I'm thinking black bin liners. I'm sure I could carry three at the same time. Um there's going to be more of this, though, isn't there, Samira? Might, might we at least look back on this one day as the beginning of a good idea, do we think? I'm trying to close the show on yeah. an optimistic note. I mean, There's I been a lot it's... of doom and gloom this evening. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. It's, you know, I'm pro. I'm just going to harumph yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> could, could you harumph for about another 20 seconds, do you Cause think? It's because she hates the environment. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what, what has it ever done for yeah, us, the right. environment? <laughs> uh, that does bring us more or less to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellet and Samira Shackle, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's the Foreign Desk Explainer and there's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Paul Osborne is your host for that. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.